So without further ado, we have Viet Tang Nguyen. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight, especially since it's so wet and cold. Um, I apologize for those of you who got here early. The wine got here late. So you know, if you haven't gotten wine, then you can certainly come and get it afterwards. We also have what's left of a bottle of cognac. I brought two bottles of cognac. And uh, for those of you who, who didn't get my introductory spiel about the cognac, this, this is a Vietnamese cocktail of choice. Ice, cognac, and 7-Up. If you go to a Vietnamese wedding, the first thing you have to know is don't show up on time. Whatever, whatever it says on the invite list, you show up an hour later. Otherwise, you're the person who's just sitting there waiting for something to happen. And then the second thing is you will see on your table usually a bottle of cognac and some 7-Up. And that's what we, that's what we drink. Um, and then we also listen to really, really loud music during the wedding. Um, there's always a pop band there that's playing Western music and Vietnamese pop music, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to show you this soundtrack from The Sympathizer, because this soundtrack is what you would hear at these kinds of weddings in the 70s and 80s. And I think the reason why the music was so loud is because people would go to these weddings on a very regular basis. They'd see the same people over and over again, and they probably ran out of things to say. So having the really loud music gave you an excuse not to talk to people. Um, but I, I, the music in the sympathizer is really important, you know, because uh, when I was growing up, I went to a lot of these weddings and I heard this music, um, and I also heard it in homes that this was the, the soundtrack to the sympathizer was really the soundtrack to Vietnamese refugee lives. That part of the way that Vietnamese people dealt with the loss of their country and their relatives and all that kind of stuff was to sing about it. And so these songs are oftentimes very, very sad, you know, but the sadness was something that we also loved at the same time. And that mood of melancholy saturates the sympathizer. And it also saturates the refugees as well, although in the refugees there's less of an effort to make gestures at this music, except for one shared song with the sympathizer, which is I'd Love You to Want Me, which you heard there sung by Lobo. And this was the possibly my favorite song growing up. Uh, and uh, it is the song that, in The Sympathizer, I talk about how the, this, this, this was the, the, the song for the bachelors and unhappily married males of my generation, or the generation before me. You know, cracked hearts, cigarettes, and cognac being our primary weaknesses. Um, so the, the Refugees, it's a very different book than The Sympathizer, for those of you who've already read The Sympathizer. Um, and the, one of the reasons why it's different is that I actually wrote The Refugees before, or mostly before, I wrote The Sympathizer. So the, the, the genesis of all this is that I, uh, I, I always wanted to be a writer. You know, I'd written a, a really short book in the second grade that won a prize. It was called Lester the Cat. <laughs> Forever lost to an ex-girlfriend who has it somewhere. Um, uh, and... Uh, so I always had in my mind that I wanted to be a writer, but I never really had the discipline. So then I got to college and you know, was taking writing workshops and the like, and I thought, okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna write short stories, because short stories are short. Therefore, they must be easy. <laughs> so I practiced a few short stories, and then I got this job here at, at USC in LA, and, and the summer of 1997, I got here to LA, and I had nothing to do. So I sat down in my apartment um, on Griffith Park Boulevard, and I wrote a short story collection in 
uh, in three months. And I was really, really proud of myself. And I thought, well, I knew at the time it wasn't a really good short story collection, but I thought, well, at least I got it down on paper. And uh, as soon as I get tenure, I can do whatever I want. And what I'm going to do is write fiction, and I'm going to finish that short story collection, and I'm going to be famous. So I got tenure, and then I went off to... Um, Paris and Saigon and uh, Provincetown for two years. The, that two-year period was a period in which I was going to finish this short story collection and become famous. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, instead, what I got was very depressed because I realized <laughs> with all this free time to write short stories that I wasn't actually very good at it and I had a lot more to learn. So the first words of this short story collection were set down in 19, summer of 1997, and now it's finally getting published in 2017, 20 years. Um, the last words were written in 2014, uh, and so it took three years to get it published. And the, the first story in this book, and I'll read from it a little bit later, Black-Eyed Women, that was, that was a story, that was the first story I started writing in the summer of 97, and I finished that in... That was, a, that was the first story I started. It was the last story I finished. So I finished it in 2014, uh, 17, 17 years after I began it, and uh, 50 drafts later. Um, and I say this not to complain. Okay, yes, I'm saying it to complain. But that's what writers have to do. And that's how I learned how to be a writer. Uh, that I spent 17 years struggling with these short stories, which you won't know when you read the book. Because you can read this book in four or five hours. And um, from what I've been told in re reviews and so on, they're pretty, pretty easy to read. And that reflects nothing in terms of the kind of work that went into this book. <laughs> which is the way it should be. You know, artists are there to suffer for you and for, and for, for us, too. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the other reason why it's very, very different than The Sympathizer, besides the fact that it's short stories, is that my, my ambitions in writing this book were really different than my ambitions in writing The Sympathizer. And, and getting, getting to the point of writing The Sympathizer and what I wanted to do with that was only made possible by the struggles that I went through and the thinking that I went through in writing The Refugees. And the ambition in The Refugees was that I wanted to write stories about Vietnamese people and Vietnamese Americans. And the genesis for all of that was my childhood as a refugee uh, in the United States. That I came here when, um, when I was four years old and grew up in Harrisburg and then in, in uh, San Jose, California. And what I was really aware of, what, that's my son, by the way, I think, my, my son, <laughs> Ellison. If he wants to come out, he can because, uh, um, yeah, come on out, Ellison. <laughs> The last, the last sentence in my book, in The Refugees, is about Ellison. So, thanks to our son Ellison for reminding me of childhood. By the time this book is published, he will be nearly the age that I was when I became a refugee. And, uh, you know, so seeing him at, at three and a half reminds me, or, you know, doesn't remind me, but makes me think about myself when I was four years old and coming here as a refugee and what that was like, and how I would never want him to become a writer if the price of being a writer is to be a refugee, as it was for me. Um, so I grew up in San Jose and, and, you know, in a heavily Vietnamese community, saturated with Vietnamese stories, Vietnamese feelings, Vietnamese emotions. Here he is. Yay! This is awesome. Oh, okay. All right. But uh, the book is actually not dedicated to Ellison. I felt like, you know, I already dedicated a book to him. Oh, you want, you want to be a pair with me? Okay. The book is already, you know, there's already a book dedicated to him, but instead the book is dedicated to all refugees everywhere. And, you know, the reason why was because, oh, no, no, let's not do that. The reason, uh -huh. the reason why, the, re the, reason, the reason why was because growing up as a Vietnamese refugee, 
saturated, surrounded by Vietnamese stories and aware of how important uh, our history was to Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese Americans, I also knew that most Americans knew nothing about Vietnam or Vietnamese people, Vietnamese people or Vietnamese refugees. And so I felt like this was a, a very serious problem. And if there was one thing I could do, it was to be a writer and to try to address that problem. And that was the route for setting off on this 20-year <laughs> endeavor to write these stories about Vietnamese refugees, Vietnamese Americans, the people they meet who are not Vietnamese, and then the people in Vietnam that they encounter when they return. So the book begins with refugees coming to the United States and it ends with Vietnamese Americans returning to Vietnam and meeting their relatives. Um, and obviously the project in the, the refugees was to humanize Vietnamese people because as growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, I was aware that the, 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 the access that most Americans had to Vietnam was through the Vietnam War movie. And in the 1980s and 1990s, I think I saw every movie that Hollywood made about the Vietnam War, which is an exercise I really don't recommend to anybody. <laughs> but it convinced me that you know, we were being dehumanized on screen, and that dehumanization was what most people knew about the Vietnamese, both in the United States and all over the world because of how powerful Hollywood was in terms of exporting these memories, these cinematic memories all over the world, right? And then the sympathizer, you stick around, you still around? You, you wanna get up again? <laughs> This is, he does this at home all the time, too. Um, but in the, sympathi in the Sympathizer, the point that I make is this is the one war in history, I think, where the losers get to write the history instead of the victors. And so the refugees, uh, in addition to the Sympathizer, is my attempt to rewrite that history from the perspective of the losers. You know, that's unfortunately the fate that, that, uh, that many of us met. And then, in a strange way, the book has a timeliness that I never really considered. Um, there was, I have all kinds of different titles for this book in the last, over the last few years as I was dreaming about maybe I'll finally get this book published somehow. And they're all very poetic and they're all very beautiful and so on. And then none of them actually felt quite right, at least to my editor. You know, and he said, well, why don't we title it The Refugees? And actually at some point in the history of thinking about this book, I had Refugees as the title. And we said, okay, sure, you know, it seems relevant. This was about six months ago. No one, I don't think anybody in, in, at Grove Atlantic, at Grove, knew how timely the title of the refugees would be. And I wish it actually wasn't timely. I actually wish that I didn't need to try to prove not just the humanity of Vietnamese people, but the humanity of refugees in our contemporary moment. So I thought I would uh, begin by reading just a couple of, of, of pages, <laughs> a couple of pages from an essay that I published this past weekend in the Financial Times called uh, America and Me. And it's about being a refugee. And I thought this will give you the context for understanding the emotional motivations for me in writing this book. Can I put you down now? No? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's cool. That's cool. You ready? You ready? I'm going to read you a book, okay? You love this. I'm a refugee, an American, and a human being, which is important to proclaim as there are many who think these identities cannot be reconciled. In March 1975, as Saigon was about to fall or on the brink of liberation, depending on your point of view, my humanity was temporarily put into question as I became a refugee. My family lived in Ban Mithuat, famous for its coffee, and for being the first town overrun by communist invasion. My father was in Saigon on business, and my mother had no way to contact him. She took my 10-year-old brother and 4-year-old me 
and we walked 184 kilometers to the nearest port in Yajang. I admit to possibly being carried. At least it was downhill. At least I was too young, unlike my brother, to remember the dead paratroopers hanging from the trees. I'm grateful not to remember the terror and the chaos that must have been involved in finding a boat. We made it to Saigon and reunited with my father, and a month later, when the communists arrived, repeated the mad scramble for our lives. That summer, we arrived in America. I came to understand that in the United States, land of the fabled American dream, it is un-American to be a refugee. The refugee embodies fear, failure, and flight. Americans of all kinds believe that it is impossible for an American to become a refugee. Although it is possible for refugees to become Americans and in that way be elevated one step closer to heaven. The average American or European who feels that refugees or immigrants threaten their jobs does not recognize that the real culprits for their economic plight are the corporate interests and individuals that want to take the profits and are perfectly happy to see the struggling pitted against each other. The economic interests of the unwanted and the fearful middle class are aligned, but so many can't see that. So many can't see that because of how much they fear the different, the refugee, the immigrant. In its most naked form, this is racism. In a more polite form, it takes the shape of defending one's culture, where one would rather remain economically poor, but ethnically pure. This fear is a powerful force, and I admit to being afraid of it. Then I think of my parents, who were younger than me when they lost nearly everything and became refugees. I can't help but remember how, after we settled in San Jose, California, and my parents opened a Vietnamese grocery store in the run-town downtown, a neighboring store put up a sign in its window, another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese. But my parents did not give in to fear, even though they must have been afraid. And I think of my son, nearly, nearly the age I was when I became a refugee, and while I do not want him to be afraid, I know he will be. What is important is that he have the strength to overcome his fear. And the way to overcome fear is to demand the America that should be and can be, the America that dreams the best version of itself. So that's what I've been trying to do in my books and in my op-eds and essays and so on. Thanks. Is to demand, you know, not to ask. And to, to ask and to be granted favors continues to put us in a position of weakness, of being the supplicant, of being the beggar. And that's what the, the refugee is supposed to be. That's why people both uh, pity and, and have contempt for refugees. But the job, I think, of writers is not to ask. The job of writers is to demand change, to demand that we live up to the best of our rhetoric to demand that we recognize when we don't live up to the best of our rhetoric. That certainly was the project of the sympathizer. The, uh, this book, The Refugees, is much less political than The Sympathizer is. In, in The Sympathizer, I set out to write about a very controversial war, and I set out to offend everybody in that book. <laughs> I just got a hate mail, actually, yesterday from an American veteran who said, you're so ungrateful. Actually, I should, I should read you. Never mind. <laughs> You're, he says, you're brilliant, and I hate you. I mean, that was the gist of the, of the message, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the thing he said to me, 
it's like, you don't really deserve to raise your son in this country. And I was like, that's going too far, but I think many people would go that far. And that's what I feel like I'm up against, and those of us who are refugees and who stand up for refugees, that's what we're up against. There's no asking someone like that for change. We demand change. So the refugees is a quiet demand for change because the project of that book, as I was writing it, was was really not to be um, confrontational. I don't think this book offends anybody. Unless you hate refugees or unless you hate Vietnamese people, in which case the book is going to offend you. Okay. <laughs> But the book is, is really this attempt to humanize Vietnamese people, tell their stories, and in that sense, it is, it is a book about um, domestic lives. It, it is not The politics and the history are on the fringes, they're important, but what's really at the center are these emotional conflicts and tumults that people are undergoing as their lives are upended. So one story is about a, v- a young Vietnamese man, 18 years old, comes to, as a refugee to the United States in 1975, gets put into a sponsor household in San Francisco with two men. And he discovers that they're gay. And then he discovers that he's gay too. I gave this story to my dad in Vietnamese translation. My dad is a devout Catholic. He never said a word to me about that story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's others. There's like there's once there's a story in there called War Years, which is the only autobiographical piece I've ever written about a young Vietnamese American boy um, with two Vietnamese shopkeeper parents and the the struggles and the travails that they that they undergo. Um, in some ways, I think that was harder. It was harder for me to write that story because it was so personal versus writing the sympathizer which is not autobiographical in any way, shape, or form, except for the squid episode, for those of you who've read that. Semi-autobiographical, how about that? (laughs) See, I offended you, good, that's nice. For those of you who don't know what the squid episode is, you're going to have to read the book. All right. So there are many, many stories like that. And, and even though the book, the, the book is a, mostly about Vietnamese refugees, there are stories about Latinos and African Americans and uh, the Vietnamese in Vietnam. But even dealing with the Vietnamese, they're about the diversity of the Vietnamese people, young and old, gay and straight, male and female, and so on. So I'm going to end with one of these stories is actually the first story that I told you about, Black-Eyed Women, the one that took me 17 years and 50 drafts to write. Um, and this uh, story, I'll just read the beginning and then I'll take questions and discussion, which is my favorite part. But this story, uh, as you're going to see, is about a ghostwriter. And this book is very much about ghosts and hauntings. Um, that to be a refugee, I think, is to be haunted by your past, is to be haunted by everything that you've lost. And in this story in particular, I take that idea of haunting and I make it very literal. Black-eyed women. Fame would strike someone, usually the kind that healthy-minded people would not wish upon themselves, such as being kidnapped and kept prisoner for years, humiliated in a sex scandal, or surviving something typically fatal. These survivors needed someone to help write their memoirs and their agents might eventually come across me. At least your name's not on anything, my mother once said. When I mentioned that I would not mind being thanked in the acknowledgments, she said, let me tell you a story. It would be the first time I heard this story, but not the last. In our homeland, she went on, there was a reporter who said, 
the government tortured the people in prison. So the government does to him exactly what he said they did to others. They send him away and no one ever sees him again. That's what happens to writers who put their names on things. (laughs) By the time Victor Devoto chose me, I had resigned myself to being one of those writers whose names did not appear on book covers. His agent had given him a book that I had ghostwritten. It's ostensible author, the father of a boy who had shot and killed several people at his school. I identify with the father's guilt, Victor said to me. He was the sole survivor of an airplane crash, 173 others having perished, including his wife and children. What was left of him appeared on all the talk shows. His body there, but not much else. The voice was a soft monotone, and the eyes, on the occasions that they looked up, seemed to hold within them the silhouettes of mournful people. His publisher said that it was urgent that he finish his story while audiences still remembered the tragedy. And this was my preoccupation on the day my dead brother returned to me. My mother woke me while while it was still dark outside and said, Don't be afraid. Through my open door, the light from the hallway stung. Why would I be afraid? When she said my brother's name, I did not think of my brother. He had died long ago. I closed my eyes and said I did not know anyone by that name. But she persisted. He's here to see us, she said, stripping off my covers and tugging at me until I rose, eyes half shut. She was 63, moderately forgetful. And when she led me to the living room and cried out, I was not surprised. He was right here, she said, kneeling by her floral armchair as she felt the carpet. It's wet. She crawled to the front door in her cotton pajamas, following the trail. When I touched the carpet, it was damp. For a moment, I twitched in belief. And the silence of the house at four in the morning felt ominous. Then I noticed the sound of rainwater in the gutters, and the fear that had gripped my neck relaxed its hold. My mother must have opened the door, gotten drenched, then come back inside. I knelt by her as she crouched next to the door, her hand on the knob, and said, you're imagining things. I know what I saw. Brushing my hand off her shoulder, she stood up, anger illuminating her dark eyes. He walked, he talked, he wanted to see you. Then where is he, Ma? I don't see anyone. Of course you don't. She sighed as if I were the one unable to grasp the obvious. He's a ghost, isn't he? Ever since my father died a few years ago, my mother and I lived together politely. We shared a passion for words, but I preferred the silence of writing while she loved to talk. She constantly fed me gossip and stories, the only kind I enjoyed concerning my father back when he was a man I did not know, young and happy. Then came stories of terror, like the one about the reporter, the moral being that life, like the police, enjoys beating people now and again. Finally, there was her favorite kind, the ghost story, of which she knew many, some firsthand. Aunt Six died of a heart attack at 76, she told me once, twice, or perhaps three times, repetition being her habit. I never took her stories seriously. She lived in Vongtao, and we were in Yajang. 
I was bringing dinner to the table when I saw Aunt Six sitting there in her nightgown. Her long gray hair, which she usually wore in a chignon, was loose and fell over her shoulders and in her face. I almost dropped the dishes. When I asked her what she was doing here, she just smiled. She stood up, kissed me, and turned me toward the kitchen. When I turned around again to see her, she was gone. It was her ghost. Uncle confirmed it when I called. She had passed away that morning in her own bed. Aunt Six died a good death, according to my mother, at home and with family, her ghost simply making the rounds to say farewell. My mother repeated her aunt's story while we sat at the kitchen table the morning she claimed to have seen my brother, her son. I had brewed her a pot of green tea and taken her temperature despite her protests, the result being, as she had predicted, normal. Waving the thermometer at me, she said, he must have disappeared because he was tired. After all, he had just completed a journey of thousands of miles across the Pacific. So how did he get here? He swam. She gave me a pitying look. That's why he was wet. He was an excellent swimmer, I said, humoring her. What did he look like? Exactly the same. It's been 25 years. He hasn't changed at all. They always look exactly the same as when you saw them last. I remembered how he looked the last time, and any humor that I felt vanished. The stunned look on his face, the open eyes that did not flinch even with the splintered board of the boat's deck pressing against his cheek, I did not want to see him again, assuming there was something or someone to see. After my mother left for her shift at the salon, I tried to go back to sleep, but could not. His eyes stared at me whenever I closed my own. Only now was I conscious of not having remembered him for months. I had long struggled to forget him, but just by turning a corner in the world or in my mind, I could run into him, my best friend. From as far back as I can recall, I could hear his voice outside our house calling my name. That was my signal to follow him down our village's lanes and pathways, through jackfruit and mango trees, mango groves to the dikes and fields, dodging shattered palm trees and bomb craters. At the time, this was a normal childhood. Looking back, however, I could see that we had passed our youth in a haunted country. Our father had been drafted, and we feared that he would never return. Before he left, he had dug a bomb shelter next to our house, a sandbag bunker whose roof was braced by timber. Even though it was hot and airless, dank with the odor of the earth and alive with the movement of worms, we often went to play there as little children. When we were older, we went to study and tell stories. I was the best student in my school, excellent enough for my teacher to teach me English after hours, lessons I shared with my brother. He, in turn, told me tall tales, folklore, and rumors. When airplanes shrieked overhead and we huddled with my mother in the bunker, he whispered ghost stories in my ear to distract me. Except, he insisted, they were not ghost stories. They were historical accounts 
from reliable sources. The ancient crones who chewed betel nut and spat its red juice while squatting on their haunches in the market, tending coal stoves or overseeing baskets of wares. Our land's confirmed residence, they said, included the upper half of a Korean lieutenant, launched by a mine into the branches of a rubber tree, a scalped black American floating in the creek not far from his downed helicopter, his eyes and the exposed half-moon of his brain glistening above the water, and a decapitated Japanese private groping through cassava shrubbery for his head. These invaders came to conquer our land and now would never go home, the old ladies said, cackling and exposing lacquered teeth, or so my brother told me. I shivered with delight in the gloom, hearing those black-eyed women with my own ears, and it seemed to me that I would never tell stories like those. Thank you. The hell with the water, I'm going for the cognac. Um, so I'd be happy to answer any questions uh, for a while. Yeah. yeah, so in that story in particular, I would just finish the story right before you, you came up. Um, I find it particularly interesting about, especially considering the title of the book, what's, where one finds one's refuge, when one becomes refugee. And one becomes refugee when their world is destroyed. They come to a new country, become a manicurist or a ghost rider, but this reality is lacking as well because it doesn't take into account their entire previous existence. Um, some kind of a, literally in the Korean drama episode, I see some kind of reprieve from this reality where one thinks about the would-haves or could-haves, but that reality is unstable because no longer exists. So in the end, my interpretation really is that one finds one's refuge somewhere stable when one comes to term with most really the, the traumatic loss itself, and of course coming to terms with is just another way of saying, uh, finding a narrative of or, or being able to tell a story of, and maybe finding sympathetic ears that do not really recoil in fear when you tell the story. That's why I think your work is so important towards that regard. That's the only time when that refuge becomes real. Um, I guess my question really is a personal one, which is where is your personal refuge that you found? What is, where is your refuge? <coughs> So just to summarize the question really quickly, uh, it's like, you know, part of the problem of being a refugee is where do you find refuge? Where do you find home after you've lost home? And and where's mine, right? Um, And that's a good question, you know, because uh, when I was growing up, uh, I certainly felt that I wasn't at home anywhere. When I was in my parents' house, it was a home, but I always felt like I didn't quite belong because I was being Americanized outside of that house. I was always spying on my parents and thinking, God, why are we eating these things? You know, <laughs> why are we doing this? And when I was outside of my parents' home, though, I felt like I was a Vietnamese spying on Americans because there was always that sense of dislocation. And I think the only home that I really felt comfortable in was a library. And that's that's you know that's where I spent most of my time. Yeah, the li- there are librarians here. I love librarians, you know, um, and that's that I found refuge in books, in stories, like you said. So ironically, on the one hand, I was looking around, and at least when it came to Vietnam, seeing that the Vietnamese were totally excluded or erased or defaced in American accounts, and so that was not a home for me. But stories in general were a home. The act of imagination, the act of of, of losing myself in some place, forgetting where I was. Ironically, to be at home, I had to forget where I was. Because if I looked around, I was like, I don't want to be here, you know, in downtown San Jose, in a rough neighborhood, watching my parents struggle. 
all these kinds of things. So I think that's that's why I became a writer, you know, partly in anger at what I saw being done to Vietnamese people, but also partly because I found a refuge in stories, and I knew that there was an importance to storytelling, that um, there are many different ways that we can try to change the world that are important, but the only thing that I can do is to tell stories. And storytelling is so important to how it is that we imagine ourselves and our country, our societies, you know, uh, People with certain stories have, have won the day right now uh, in the United States. And we, we have to fight back in many ways, but partially through telling stories in order to make America home for all of us. Erin. So then was the academic route a detour from your was the academic route a detour? Um, and so those of you who know me know that, um, you know, I've been a professor at USC for 20 years and I went to I was, you know, at a PhD program for five years before that. So 25 years in academic. I don't think it's been a detour. You know, I think, I don't know what it is. I mean, I think it is the route that I have taken that has made me into the writer that I am because if I wasn't an academic, I couldn't have written The Sympathizer. I, I, I would have written some kind of a novel, but it wouldn't have been The Sympathizer. And, you know, with The Sympathizer, I really wanted, I mean, the, with The Refugees, I think I could have written The Refugees without being an academic, okay? But The Sympathizer, I think, I bring into that book everything I knew as an academic from theory, criticism, scholarship. And when you when I say these kinds of things, you know, most people look at me with a blank glaze, glaze in their eyes, like, theory? I don't want to hear about theory. You know, and, and a lot of writers feel that way. And that has really shaped contemporary American fiction, you know, that a lot of American fiction is not inclined to be theoretical or critical, not inclined to be uh, to incorporate scholarship, and the, there's a this, there's a suspicion that you can't actually do those kinds of things. So why try? And my my view on it was I wanted to try. I wanted to take all that academic knowledge and demonstrate that you could actually write an interesting novel with it. So not a detour. Absolutely necessary. Yes, in the back. Um, the sympathizer seems to suggest that uh, the idea of uh, a full integrated self is maybe uh, not desirable or even um, possible. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, well, I don't really have a good answer for you at this point because the sympathizer is obviously about duality of constantly negotiating between these binary opposites. And by the end of the sympathizer, the I'm not giving too much away, I think, the, the protagonist is destroyed because he can't actually reconcile these two opposite sides that he's been struggling with the entire length of the book. And I think that um, uh, that the fate that he meets is the ultimate worst fate for someone who feels like they belong to two sides. There are many of us, though, I think, who negotiate, as I just talked about with my own past, have negotiated with that on a daily basis. And we have been able to, I think, work out some kind of negotiation, a tentative existence. And it's partially because we haven't been subjected to the same kinds of historical pressures that the sympathizer has. When, when, when here I talk about negotiating between two sides, you know, it's like, well... I can, can I put sriracha on my steak? Okay, that's negotiating between two sides, right? <laughs> but in the sympathizer, it's, it's, it's a lot more severe. You know, it's communism versus capitalism. You die if you choose the wrong side in this conflict. Um, so I, I, I think I reached the end of that book, and uh, it was both a, a pessimistic conclusion in terms of what happens to him, but also an optimistic one, because he recognizes that from there he has to try to build 
a new self. Now, what that new self is, we don't know because the book ends at that point, which is why I felt like I had to write a sequel to see what happens to him afterwards. Um, and, and because I knew that the ending that was expected for me in that book was not the ending that I wanted. The ending, given that I was publishing in the United States about a communist spy who gets disillusioned, the ending that American publishers want is for that communist spy, that disillusioned communist spy, to eat apple pie and dream the American dream. Okay? And that's not what happens. So I refused the most conventional possible ending that would affirm the ideology of my readers and my publish and potential publishers. And which means though that I'm still trying to figure out what the next step is. If it's not if after communism and revolution it's not the American dream and apple pie, what is it? That's what I have to figure out. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that there are really some powerful American movies about the war, you know, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, and so on, but they obviously depict the American point of view, and they do it well, apparently. Um, but, and then there are films that depict the Vietnamese or the North Vietnamese point of view, films like When the Tenth Month Comes, which is a very powerful film, or films that depict the South Vietnamese point of view, like Journey from the Fall. Um, these are all available on DVD, so you, you can watch them. But I don't think I can think of any movies that actually try to get past the inherent problem of the war, which is of division and, and of seeing things from one side. Now, these films tell the story from one side really, really well, but they don't really help us think about how to get beyond that perspective. The one film that I think may do that um, or the one director that I think that may do that is not actually Vietnamese. He's Cambodian, uh, Riti Pan. And he's made a career. He's probably Cambodia's best-known director. And he's made a career out of investigating w the consequences of the genocide in Cambodia. And the reason I even bring this up is because I think that for me, when I say the Vietnam War, I don't just mean Vietnam. I mean Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. So what happened in Cambodia during and after the war, for me, is a part of that history. And Riti Pan, you know, he survived the, uh, that genocide. Um, most of his family did not. And so he's devoted his life to trying to figure out how to make sense out of that. And not just from the perspective of the victims, but also from the perspective of the victimizers, the Khmer Rouge. And so in a film like The Missing Picture, which is a, a documentary that was, I think, shortlisted for the Oscar, which I really, really recommend. You can watch it on Netflix. Um, he, he gets really close to being able to, to do that. You know, and partially the way he's able to do that is that he's he's interested in both what happens to the, the people who, who who suffered, but also the people who tortured them, and it's an aesthetically brilliant film as well. You know, he's dealing with a horrible subject, and what he does is that he stages it through the, there are no human beings, these little carved figurines on dioramas that recreate the setting of Cambodia and the camps. And somehow through that, he creates aesthetic magic, cinematic magic, that gets us to feel deeply and to think deeply about uh, this tragedy from, uh, from the perspective of both sides. In the back. Oh, I read all kinds of writers. You know, um, uh, well, the good thing about the San Jose Public Library is that there are no there are no boundaries. I mean, there are little stickers saying young adult fiction and children's literature and all kinds, but there's no walls. So that meant me being the 
<laughs> the little boy who, who, who took the bus by himself to go to the library without any parental guidance and no sense of PG-13 or R-rated or whatever meant that I was reading all kinds of stuff that I should not have been reading, you know, including R-rated stuff. I mean, it's great that the public library has R-rated stuff, but if you're a parent, maybe you should be worried about it because I was reading softcore pornography when I was like 13 years old in the library. And... Uh, that that helped to explain the writer that I became, you know, because no, I mean seriously, I mean like, I read Philip Roth when I was twelve or thirteen, and all I remembered was the liver scene, and that made its way into my novel through the squid scene, and uh, I read all kinds of things that were shocking and traumatizing, um, and I read and and those that experience of being shocked and traumatized really shaped me because it made me think is that a good thing is it a good thing to shock or traumatize your reader and I think it is sometimes you want to be comforted and there are all kinds of books like Curious George that I read as a child that, that were really wonderful but the books that, that scarred me were just as important so I read a lot of war books I read a lot of war books and and uh, read a lot of books about you know crime and 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 and, and all of that was formative into shaping me into a writer. Yeah. I, I, just, I just published something in the New York Times this past weekend on the buy the book section. You get a whole reading list in there of things that I that have shaped me. Yes. Okay. So in my writing, how do I distinguish between the refugee experience and the immigrant experience? And that's a good question because, you know, when The Sympathizer came out, there, there were a lot of reviews that said, this is an immigrant novel. And, you know, Viet is an immigrant writer. And I had to, like, forcefully say then, and I still repeat it whenever I can, that I'm not an immigrant. I'm a refugee. And The Sympathizer is not an immigrant novel. It's a war novel. And when we say immigrant in the United States, it's a way of containing meaning, right? You know, we look at all these very different kinds of populations and how they came to the States, and we think, immigrant. And when we say immigrant, we don't have to think that, oh, maybe it's because we fought wars in that country that led them to immigrate here to our country, which is why I think of The Sympathizer as a war novel. And a lot of it is about war. But to say that it's an immigrant novel denies the continuity between war and immigration or war and refugees. And to be a refugee, is, as I said at the beginning, you know, is to be un-American, whereas to be an immigrant is to be potentially an American. And so I think that um, in my own work, I haven't written immigrant fiction. I mean, the, the stories of the refugees and the, and, the, and the sympathizer are very explicit about showing how it is that war and displacement have created these kinds of populations. And that's really crucial to, that's one of the ways that, you know, writers can distinguish these experiences or they, they, can, they can complicate the American tendency to categorize all these newcomers as immigrants and to think of that as a good thing. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, so-called immigrant writers or writers who write about immigration that I think they, they, they dehistoricize their stories. They give Americans the version of immigration that Americans want to hear, which is, again, the sriracha on the steak story. You know, immigrants are good because now we eat pho and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then we don't think about the fact that, you know, we had to drop bombs on them before they brought the pho over here. And that's the, the task of the writer is to bring up that, that history, right? to make the reader uncomfortable. Okay. okay, follow up. Do you think a lot of the immigrant narratives that are written today are actually refugee stories in disguise? Do I think a lot of the immigrant stories today are refugee stories in disguise? Categorized? Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, because we hesitate to use the word refugee. It's just not in the common parlance. We use, re- we use refugees when we see people, you know, dying on boats in the ocean somewhere, right? Or when they're clearly a political issue like Syrians today. But when someone publishes a book, you know, the tendency is to say immigrant because we understand how to market that. You know, and marketing is really crucial to how books get written, how books get published, and so on. And so if you're a writer who disrupts conventional dominant expectations, you're, in, you're, in, you're, you're setting yourself up for a greater challenge. But that's what I think. For example, The Sympathizer, rejected by 13 out of 14 publishers. Okay? So, and I think it was partially because I didn't give people the apple pie and American dream ending. That I, would, I probably would have sold it to most of those people if I had done that. So, but that's the challenge, you know. It's like if you are writing about refugees and you assert that, you're you're entering into a much more troublesome, uh, but necessary terrain. In the back. Um, you mentioned when you were talking about the refugees that there's only one story in that collection of autobiographical, and I was wondering if you could speak more about the extent where maybe some of the materials um, emotionally resonant with you, even if the plot points are different? Yeah. Well, I think, um, even though the question is, are there, are, are there emotional, is, is the book emotionally autobiographical, even if only one of the stories is explicitly autobiographical? And I think that's true. You know, even The Sympathizer, okay, well, The Sympathizer is about a spy who is, you know, a, 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 a traitor, um, an alcoholic, a womanizer, a murderer, it's not autobiographical, you know, but <laughs> or so I say. Uh, but, but it is autobiographical emotionally. You know, I talked earlier about you know feeling like a spy in my parents' house and feeling like a spy in the outside of it. And I just took that feeling and I blew it up tremendously to get to the sympathizer. And likewise, I think with the refugees, even though most of the stories have no autobiographical autobiographical connection, that feeling of displacement, of otherness, of longing, of loss, of being haunted, that I felt in my own life, um, even as a young boy, in a very non-dramatic way, are there, is present there in all of the stories. Maybe we'll take one last question. Any last questions? No? Yes. Can we have a question regarding the sympathizer? Um, you know, since the book received a lot of awards, and I know it, it was well received among the American readers, have you had any feedback from the Vietnamese Americans and the community here? I'll tell you, they love me winning the Pulitzer. <laughs> the question was, how do Vietnamese people, they, they say that they love me winning the Pulitzer, right? And, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, before the novel won the Pulitzer, you know, it was sort of like, well, it's a, you know, it was a well-received novel and everything like that, and the Vietnamese community as, as an out and average didn't care at all about it. Or if they did, from what I could tell, they're like, it's about a communist spy. That's uh, a tricky issue here in Southern California, where the, you know, the anti-communist feeling runs pretty strong. And uh, so, yeah, you know, we're very status conscious people, so uh, that trumps everything. <laughs> like, for example, like, I want, I want the Pulitzer, I've got to tell this story. And, um, and uh, I, I learned about it on the road, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. And, and then I didn't call home to tell my dad about it or my parents. Uh, I think because in the back of my, my, my mind, I thought, you know, we're modest people. We don't brag about these kinds of things or, you know, it's, it's to be expected you win the Pulitzer, you know, you know, model minority kind of business. And so, but then two days later, he calls me on the road and he says, 
our relatives from Vietnam called, you won the Pulitzer, you know, and uh, for him that made it all really real, and his voice was shaking with joy, he was the happiest I'd heard him in years, right, and, uh, and I think that is, you know, to some degree how the Vietnamese community as a, as a whole feels about the book, that its stature, people take pride in it, you know, and I don't want to be anybody's representative or anybody's voice, but they, some of them, some people treat me that way um, because of whatever the prize signifies. And um, the ones who've actually read it in English, so far the overwhelming reaction has been positive from both from people who, who are old enough to have lived through that time period and from people who are so young they tell me I don't remember anything about that time period but I'm, I, I, I have been so emotionally affected by what my parents have gone through that this book activates emotions in me that I find deeply unsettling um, so I'm glad that the book has been able to affect people in that way Yeah. thank you so much You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.